Al Jazeera Podcasts. The whole Christian story happened in the Holy Lands, that it was Bethlehem, it was Jerusalem, it was Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. You'd better get to understand that there is such a thing as an Arab Christian. On center stage today is Harry Hagopian, a lawyer based in the UK who is an Armenian Christian originally from Jordan. Hagopian talks about the interfaith mosaic of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity within the Israel-Palestine context and describes his role during the Oslo Accords. Dr. Harry Hagopian, welcome to Center Stage. Thank you. So there are lots of Israeli voices lately um, showing their surprise and even uh, their negation. They are completely sure that there are no Christians in uh, Gaza, despite that one of the oldest churches in the world exists in Gaza. Uh, Yourself, as an assistant to the General Secretary of the Middle East Council of Churches, um, what would you say? What about the Christians in Gaza? I would say that that is not true. And those who say that either are totally ignorant of the demographic realities of the whole MENA region, let alone Israel-Palestine, which includes Gaza, or they're being mischievous because politically it suits their purposes to extract the Palestinians, particularly the indigenous local Palestinians, out of the equation so that politically it just becomes a formula where you've got Arab Muslims and Israeli Jews. And the Christians are a bit of a spoiler in the middle because their numbers are small. And at the same time, they have a lot of connection. And that is their strength. Their strength is not in their numbers. It's a very minute uh, community across the whole region, which has been reducing in numbers over the decades. But where their strength lies is, first of all, the services they provide. You go to any country, including Palestine, you go to Lebanon, you go to Syria, and you've got hospitals, you've got old people's homes, you've got all sorts of programs that are run by Christian organizations or agencies. That is one of its dimensions. It's a presence that is predicated on service. Service is to try and serve others in the community. And then the other thing, of course, is that when you talk to a Christian, a Christian's voice is not only circumscribed to the space locally or regionally, but it is also circumscribed internationally across the world. When a Catholic talks, the resonance, the echo, goes to Rome, to the Vatican, to the Pope. If an Anglican speaks, the resonance or the echo goes to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Ditto with the Lutherans. Ditto with the Greek Orthodox. And I'll give you a small example. I have done a lot of traveling across the United States, particularly going all the way down to Texas. And I was always told, prepare yourself when you go and introduce yourself as a Christian who originally hails from Jordan. They would say, oh, you're a Christian? When did you convert? Mm -hmm. Or how did you get missionized? And indeed it happened. So they had no idea that there were local Christians. And these are people who from morning till evening talk about the Bible and how they know each chapter, each verse by heart. And I tell them, does it not make any sense to you in the Bible that the whole Christian story happened in the Holy Lands? 
that it was Bethlehem, it was Jerusalem, it was Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. This is the region where the mystery for the Christian church began, where the early church began, when there was an occupation by the Roman emperors. And then after that, it, it uh, expanded across the world. And they look at me like I've landed from Jupiter or from another planet. And I used to tell them, listen, you'd better get to understand that there is such a thing as an Arab Christian. Um, you say that the Christians, uh, the Arab Christians, their uh, voices echo in Rome, they echo uh, in the Orthodox Church. Do the Palestinian, Christian Palestinians get the same treatment? Do you feel that they get the same treatment? Their vo voices, are they heard? Their voices are probably heard better than anybody else's voice, Rawa. If I'll give you just one example, for this Christmas, the Christian community celebrated Christmas only, what, two weeks ago? And during that period, in that little town of Bethlehem, as the carol goes, there is a pastor called Mundar Ishaq, who runs the Christmas church, which is smack in the middle of Bethlehem. Now, Mundar Ishaq has been on all channels talking about how the Christian evangelical groups in the United States and elsewhere have not understood what is happening to the reality of Gaza and the reality of the Christians in the region. Now that gets reported. There is a difference between saying your voice goes out mm -hmm. than to say your voice is acted upon. This takes us realistically on the ground. What does all this voice, all this um, reach uh, do in comparison on the ground and the reality on the ground, especially now if we want to start with the Christians of Gaza, who's helping them out, who's, uh, who's advocating for them, and who's actually doing something to stop the war so that they can live in peace in their own land? Well, that's a very good question. And the answer again comes to the fact that there are a lot, for instance, when the war started, uh, there were many statements that came out from Israeli political spokespersons who basically decried the fact that there are Christian churches or Christians in Gaza. Even Western Christians, particularly American Christians, Europeans are a little bit more savvy when it comes to the world because of their colonial past. So they've learned history. Americans haven't learned history. So they were talking about it and they were saying, oh, what's happening now? The churches talked about the Catholic Church in Gaza, which was targeted and damaged. They talked about the Greek Orthodox Church, which, was, which is there. They only had uh, a celebration last week. Now, this sensitizes, but we come again, sensitizing, informing, talking about does not necessarily mean you have the ability to change facts on the ground. Facts are not done by religion. Facts are done by uh, political circumstances. Mm -hmm. And the political circumstances at the moment are such that those voices that are heard, I come back to Reverend Mundar Ishaq. I mean, the man is bursting out, screaming at the top of his voice about how can you leave us? How can you abandon us? Hardly anybody listens to it. But look at also the overwhelming majority of Muslim uh, Palestinians. They're also talking. Who's listening to them? Which so, takes us to the politics. Yes. Uh, um, politically, you said that uh, the Israeli government is always trying to make it look like a Muslims against Jews war. 
and no one's listening to the Palestinian voices. Uh, where do the Palestinian Christians stand? The Palestinian Christians, that's another thing that is important because when you talk Christian, even those who know something about the region would say, oh, Christian means West, means America, means Europe. And therefore, these are people who are westernized, who think like the West, and therefore they are pro-Israel, and they're not people who are supportive of the Palestinian cause or of all the causes that the Arab countries suffer from. So in that sense, that is the reaction of most people. But what they forget, and this is key, I think, and I'm reading a book now as I'm passing through Qatar, a book on the Palestinian diaspora, and how do people across the United States and Europe feel as Palestinians, both Christian and Muslim, who are no longer in the country, but they have the same feelings. Why? Because they were born there. As I say, in their genes, there is nothing different from a Muslim Palestinian. The only difference is that religiously, we follow different branches and different creeds. But when it comes to the rootedness or the attachment to the land, when it comes to the cultural values that the land teaches you, a Palestinian Christian and a Muslim uh, Palestinian are not different. They have grown from the same sources. They've, as they say, uh, they've drunk from the same water, and therefore they have the same understanding of what that land is. So this whole idea that if you're a Christian, you're not really attached to your land, or you think more like a Westerner. The reason that comes about is in part, I think, because Christians across the whole MENA region, and certainly within the Palestinian territories, have more connections with the West. And this used to happen more in the 70s and 80s, now less so. That does not mean that that person is less rooted or less loyal to what basically was his upbringing. You were representing the churches of Jerusalem in the track to, uh, of Oslo negotiations yeah. um, between that time and today. Uh, is the Oslo Accord still valid today? No, I mean, whenever I write or whenever I speak about the Oslo Accords, I always qualify it by saying the much maligned Oslo Accords, because they have proven ineffective, impractical. They didn't work, because if they worked, then we wouldn't be in the mess that we are in today, and we wouldn't be seeing what we're seeing today. But then you ask yourself, for all those people who always bemoan the fate of uh, Oslo and uh, what did Oslo bring except that Arafat went to the south side of the lawn in the White House and shook hands with President Clinton and they had a Palestinian authority that was created which sometimes is more cumbersome than facilitator. So in a sense, so what? What do you go now to the Palestinian territories? They had divided them into zones A, B and C. C was supposed to be under Israeli jurisdiction. B, I'm talking here like a lawyer. B was where they shared. The military was Israeli, the practical affairs was Palestinian, and A was all Palestinian under cities and towns like Ramallah, Nablus, Jenin, all these places, Hebron, Khanil, all these places were A. You go now, is there A, B, and C? There is no A, B, and C because Israel moves in and out as if it is 
its own occupied territory. So in a sense, it has fallen on its face. But why did this happen? This happened amongst many reasons, perhaps partly because the Palestinian negotiators at the time were too excited by the ability finally of getting a state that they did not think of the details and the expression in English schools that the, de the devil is in the details and that was not really looked at. Also the fact that if you want this to happen you have to have the international support and international support was not forthcoming because there is still in the West a colonial mentality which does not feel very comfortable with the Palestinians having their own homeland which is independent and on which they can stand on their own feet. So yes, Oslo was a failure, much maligned as I say, but the fact remained that at that time it looked like the best option and politics is strewn with missed opportunities. So that was one big opportunity that was missed. So the international support didn't even uh, uh, support what the churches of Jerusalem um, imposed through the, the Oslo negotiations or got, uh, if we want yeah, to say Yeah, impose is a strong word and got is an equally strong word. And the reason I'll say that is because when I was negotiating on behalf of the 13 hierarchical churches, Orthodox, Catholic and Reform or Protestant, I was not there to impose a Christian viewpoint on Oslo. I was not there to extract something out of uh, Oslo. What I was doing simply is like a fireman making sure that the fire doesn't spread in the sense that their rights mm -hmm. are not taken away. I'll give you an example. When we were in the heat of the negotiations, there was talk. There is a tiny place called the Old City and the Old City is divided into four quarters. You have the Muslim quarter, the Christian quarter, the Jewish quarter and the Armenian quarter. What Israel wanted to do at that time during the Oslo negotiations is for the Christian and Muslim quarters, which are strictly Arab in their political imagination, go with the Palestinian Authority in terms of control, but not jurisdiction. So de facto, but not de jure. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Armenian quarter was supposed to be twinned with the Jewish quarter, both control and jurisdiction, de facto and de jure. I got wind of it as the person who was representing the political interests of the churches, independent of Israel, independent of the Palestinian Authority. When I got wind of what was being cooked up, I went and had a meeting of the church leaders and I told them, listen guys, this is dangerous on so many levels. And let us not go into the more theosophical uh, arguments. Let us not even go through the religious arguments. Let us just go into a practical argument. There are many Christians who work in the Muslim quarter, live in the Christian quarter. There are many Armenians who do the same thing. It's a small patch of land. What do you mean separating two quarters and two quarters? Because no matter all the good intentions that, oh, this is going to remain open, this is going to be a template for the future, that's all 
border dash. It's rubbish. You know that at the end of the day, you're going to have checkpoints. So imagine putting checkpoints between the Armenian quarter and the Christian quarter. So I said to them, I said, this does not stand up and we should do something about it. So I drafted a letter addressed to President Clinton, Prime Minister Barak and Chairman Arafat, took it to Camp David where they were having their powwow, in which it said that we as the uh, uh, Armenian church refuse to be separated from the Christian and Muslim quarters. All three quarters were under Jordanian rule before the Six-Day War. So why do you want to grasp it and take it and uh, use it for your own purposes? Because it makes a shortcut for people who want to go and pray at the wall. So I said, no. And what happened? Arafat refused to sign on the dotted line. And the whole idea of splitting the four into two versus two, albeit unequal, asymmetric, didn't happen. And the famous joke that goes is that as they came out, the reporters asked Yasser Arafat, they said, Mr. Chairman, how come you refused to accept the Armenian quarter to go with Israel versus the Christian and Muslim quarter? You know what his answer was? He had a sense of humor. What did he say? Didn't you know? My name is not Yasser Arafat. My name is Yasser Arafat Yan. And the Yan is what every Armenian family has at the end of their name. So everybody laughed. And that was an example of politics, religion, and practical circumstances of power play in the middle. So from that time until uh, up to today, what is now the uh, power play on the ground inside Jerusalem? Are the Armenian quarters, Christian quarters still intact and, uh, and uh, Palestinian? It depends what you mean by intact. Uh, have they been taken over by Israel? No. Are they still occupied territory, all of it, because Jerusalem under international law is an occupied land? We tend to forget that just because Israel annexed it and Trump agreed to it doesn't mean that international law was put in the washing machine. So in a sense, the uh, city is still uh, occupied territory. And within that occupied territory, of course, there are loads and loads of incursions. There have been a lot of tensions recently with settlers coming with their hired guns to try and take over part of the Armenian uh, patriarchate, the Armenian church grounds. So the Armenians are talking, the churches are talking, but for the world to respond, it has to have ears. And for the moment, the churches that matter, they speak. But then you have millions more of Christian evangelical uh, communities across the United States who are lock, stock and barrel pro-Israel, so they overwhelm the traditional churches and they say, oh no, of course, this is the land of Israel, they have to do whatever they want to do. And the political situation continues. Rawa, the conflict in Israel-Palestine is an easy conflict if we just accept two premises. Forget history, put history to one side. If we accept that there is an occupation and we seek justice, then it's resolved. But to get there, 
needs so much goodwill, which is lacking, so much political interests that interrupt the flow, uh, as it were, that we have been having this, what, people say 56 years, if you start in 67, it's, I don't know, 70 some years, if you start in 1948, it's all political. And at the end of the day, this is not a religious conflict. This is not a conflict between communities. This is a political conflict on land grab. One party wants the land. The other party owns the land and doesn't want to give it. Who is stronger to get it? The one who wants it or the one who wants to keep it? Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Dr. Hari Agopio. My pleasure. This episode was produced in partnership with the Islam and Muslims Initiative, an international platform that connects Muslims and non-Muslims in the realms of religion, politics, business, media, academia, and civil society.